0: We've always been very actor orientated. We love, and also I would say too, like the other thing is we're highly collaborative. You know, the fact that Joe and I work as a team speaks to the fact that we love the process of collaboration in filmmaking. So we extend that process of collaboration to everyone, our actors, our cinematographer, etc. So we really treat everybody as fellow filmmakers with us.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Director's Cut Brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Anthony and Joe Russo's new drama, Cherry. The film tells the story of Cherry, a college dropout with only one solid thing in his life, his true love Emily, who drifted into becoming an army medic in Iraq. After he returns from the war with post-traumatic stress disorder and his drug addiction puts him into debt, Cherry resorts to becoming a serial bank robber. In addition to Cherry, the Russo Brothers' other directorial credits include the feature films Avengers Endgame, Avengers Infinity War, and the movies for television The Council of Dads and Courtroom K. The Russo Brothers spoke with DGA past president Paris Barclay about filming Cherry in front of a virtual audience. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation.
2: Welcome, everybody. I'm here with at least one of the Russos. Oh, here, I have both of them together to talk about Cherry today. Um, guys. I was devastated i had that moment of silence uh, when the film is done i watched it by myself on on my own personal screen and it wrecked me for a bit and i think part of the reason it wrecked me is because it was you know very much to me like the experience i had watching the deer hunter which is what came to mind after it which was i really had nothing more to say and i had been kind of emotionally exhausted and I realized that in that short period of time of the movie, you'd made me love so many people and 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 at the same time feel so much pain for them. I think it's a huge accomplishment. Um, so kudos to you just to to start out. Um, but I want to deal with the question that you've been talking about. I've seen some of the interviews and read some of them about a lot. And and people seem to be amazed that this is a Russo Brothers movie. Uh, I am not one of those people because I have seen. You know, Robert Wise make West Side Story and The Day the Earth Stood Still and <laughs> Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And I've seen Steven Spielberg make E.T. and Close Encounters and Lincoln and Schindler's List. So I'm not stunned when a filmmaker uses a different language to tell the story that they're telling. But I also think it's sort of a culmination of so many of the films and television shows you've done before. And I love if you just start talking about how this is a Russo Brothers movie and how what you've done before has led you to making Cherry This this spectacular thing that it is. Um, you know, we, gosh,
0: I thank you for observing that, by the way. It is, it, it can be sort of annoying when, you, when, when when we hear the observation that it doesn't feel like a Rooster Brothers movie. But, you know, a lot of people don't know that we started off as indie filmmakers. And some people don't even know about our decade in television. Um, <laughs> some people only know us for the, uh, the Marvel films. Um, but we did... Um, We did start off as indie filmmakers and we were very, you know, we started off very experimental, like our, you know, while we loved a lot of cinema, uh, you know, one of our strongest uh, inspirations starting out was the French new wave and, and Truffaut. We loved shoot the piano player. So we, we liked, we liked style as highly stylized films. We liked films that were conscious, self-aware of themselves as movies. We liked movies that were sort of commenting, on themselves as films, as they were telling you a story. We liked the sort of l- very layered storytelling and we liked stylistic sort of a- adventurism.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, mm-hmm. We ended up, that very first movie we made, we ended up uh, making a connection with Steven Soderbergh on that film. He, you know, That movie played at the Slamdance Film Festival the same year that Steven had a movie there called Schizopolis, which was opening the festival. And I don't know, for anybody who'd seen Schizopolis, it's similarly riotous and adventurous and and um, stylistically extreme, and I just bring that up to just contextualize where we were when we started. A- anyway, jump to Cherry. I think you know Cherry was a movie. You know, we we came out of a great run. We we made over the last seven eight years, we made four movies with Marvel, and they're among our you know the favorite our favorite experiences of our lives. But they were very specific big movies. And I think coming out of that for a variety of reasons, we got sort of more specific and more personal. And I think as a part of that process, we, we went back to our, our our more riotous or experimental phase. And I think it was specifically for this reason, you know, the, the one thing we loved about the novel Cherry was that this character, the entire novel is through his point of view. It's very, it's kind of like an inner monologue and that's, the the tension between that inner monologue and the exterior sort of experiences that the character has is where all the verve comes from in the book and where all the fun comes from. So we wanted to find a way to make the movie very specifically from Cherry's point of view. And of course, one way we did that was through voiceover, which we were borrowing from the book. Um, But we wanted to find other ways to do that as well. And I think we really, you know, with our, with our, um, Cinematographer Tom Siegel and a lot of our other collaborators, we found a variety of a huge range of ways to do that cinematically, to color each scene, each experience, each moment in the movie through the specific emotional or psychological experience of that of that character.
2: Yeah, I'm really interested in that, in that kind of stuff, too, because I think part of the accomplishment of it is that it's stylistically, you know, potentially disjointed, but didn't feel disjointed at all. It felt to me like You know, musicians playing together in each of these acts in a harmony that I could understand, um, but not the literal one I was expecting. But before we jump into the specifics of the movie, I do want to talk about the why of this particular story. You've talked about, you know, Cleveland and family and people that you know that have lived through and sometimes died from opioid addiction. How does that get you the passion and and where does that figure into why you did this movie? Joe, do you want to jump into that on why this movie at this time? Yeah.
3: Um, look, this is it's a building uh, epidemic and, um, you know, it's been ongoing and it's been ongoing in our lives. We grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, the, the industrial Midwest is ground zero for the crisis in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we grew up at a time in the city when, uh, you know, it was a lot of economic strife. Uh, the industrial Midwest was collapsing because all the industry was leaving. And um, those cities, uh, in a lot of ways, have a, a lot of trauma that surrounds them, and there's a lack of forward momentum for people who grew up in those towns. Um, we know because we grew up there, and I think it's where we, you know, our sense of humor, our fatalistic sense of humor comes from. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, we, you know, um, we've lost loved ones to this crisis, and we are dealing with people very close to us who are. Um, struggling with their sobriety. And, you know, it just felt like it was everywhere. I mean, it felt like there was a time there where I was getting phone call um, from, you know, friends and, and or my children coming home and telling me that someone in school had overdosed, that, you know, it, it was pervasive. And, uh, and this book fell into our laps and the voice was so specific in it. I think another group that is really um, in harm's way with, with this crisis is Gen Z. And the voice in the book, even though Nico's a millennial, was so specific to what I had known, talking to my children and their friends about how they felt about opioids and how they felt about this crisis and how they felt about life in general, what technology was doing to them. And so, you know, we're trying to make a really progressive story here um, about, um, uh, you know, a, an exceedingly modern drug problem. This is a scientifically engineered drug um, um, that's been engineered to make you addicted to it. It's very unique than other drug cycles that we've had. Um, uh, this is like, this is a malicious um, uh, drug and uh, and it's gone unchecked for years and it's caused, it's wreaked havoc on society. In fact, this year um, is the highest death rate in the history of, uh, of the wow. opioid crisis. So um, it just felt like it was uh, uh, time to tell the story and to generate a conversation around the issue that was, you know, becoming commonplace for too many people.
2: Yeah, and as, as someone who's been in recovery for a long time, I could tell you a lot of the way you presented it was very difficult to watch, and in some cases triggering a bit. And I'm curious, because there is a movie that could have been made that, li- that sort of leaned less into the vivid depiction that you did, the Requiem of a Dream of the, the depiction of the dope life and leaned into the recovery and and, uh, what it took for him to come out of that. But you decided not to do that. And I'm wondering, is that just what the way the book told the story, or is that the way you chose to tell the story in terms of your balance of of recovering versus the actual dope life?
3: It's a great question, by the way. And, you know, I think that um, it was, it was very important. First of all, the book does lean heavily into that. Uh, But second to secondary to that, it was really important to Anthony and I that we not glamorize this in any way, shape or
2: form. Mm. It Hope was not
3: glamorous. Hope was critically important to us in the film. That's why there's, you know, there is a positive outcome at the end, even though it costs him 15 years of his life to reach that positive outcome. Um, but it really is what the story is about ultimately is two young people who make decisions that they don't have the life experience to make that cost them a decade and a half of their lives. So it's, mm-hmm. a, you know, we were, we call it a sort of a tragic modern love story, in that regard. And it's because there are these modern elements like opioid addiction that interfere with their lives and their ability to function. And um, and you know, to go back to your question, there there is a lot that's triggering in it, and a lot of it is based on you know, Anthony and I are, are fortunate enough to you know not have, have, have struggled through drug addiction in our lives, but people very close to us have, and we've been through it. Um, and, uh, and so we wanted to show people what it was like going through it, and what it felt like mm-hmm. and how painful it is and what it costs you. And mm-hmm. I think that's why it was really important to not glamorize it in any way, um, uh, to unfortunately make it triggering, uh, um, mm-hmm. but to, but to, you know, really show the, the level of detail and honesty that is involved with, um, uh, this kind of, uh, Addiction, because it's not it's it's very easy to have a pill handed to you at a party that you put in your mouth and then you lose 20 years of your life because of that decision. Uh, and if you're 16, that's that's, you know, a decision that, you're, you know, you're not prepared to make. Um, and uh, and so really, that was that was what was critical to us about. Um,
2: I think you succeeded very impressively in this, but I'm particularly interested in how you got Tom Holland there, who is most likely not a heroin addict. Uh, but and I was also most likely a very kind of nice, pleasant guy. I met him once in an audition. He seemed perfectly uh, likable. Somehow in the course of this movie, you've taken him on a trip. And when I what I've read about the movie and when I have read about people talking about it, it seems like it, it's something that he did. But I'm curious as to how you got him there did you rehearse with him? Did you, um, did you, how did you speak to him on the set to get that level of performance that I think even he must be a little bit surprised by when he sees it, you know, how much of your process and your time and your investment went into shaping that performance? Yeah, we um,
0: look, we have a really close relationship with Tom. I think that's one of the things that we, enjoyed most about the, the those that mm. run of Marvel movies that we did was that we got to work with actors over and over again, several projects over several years. And in that process, like with television, you develop a very deep understanding of your collaborators on a creative level and on a personal level. And that's something we, we, we really valued. And Tom, I would say, is even unique on that level in the sense that, you know, we cast him as Spider-Man. As you can imagine, that casting process was extremely involved. Mm-hmm. So right from the get-go with Tom, we, and we had a very, Joe and I had a very strong reaction to Tom when we saw him audition. So we he became our pick very early in the process. And then it became uh, a, a process of us working with him extensively in order to get, the, get, him, get him approved for the role. So we developed a very intense relationship with him right from that point forward. And he's young too i mean he was a teenager when we cast him so um i think part of it is that depth of relationship we have with him and that sort of very uh, it's almost now it's like intuitive understanding of one another on a creative level which is really valuable but we are super actor orientated we love actors joe is a trained actor he has an mfa in acting um but we've always been very actor orientated we love and also i would say too like the other thing is you know we're highly collaborative. You know, the fact that Joe and I work as a team speaks to the fact that we love the process of collaboration in filmmaking. So we, ex- we extend that process of collaboration to everyone, our actors, our cinematographer, et cetera. So we really treat everybody as fellow filmmakers with us. And so we did a deep dive with Tom uh, early on about the story, about the character, about what was possible to do with this kind of movie. So that we're we're all, we have a very deep, strong, common understanding of what we're trying to do
2: very early on. And, and did you rehearse with him? Did he meet with Nico? What, what how, I just am so curious Nico, as to how we got Nico there. Didn't, Nico didn't, uh,
0: he didn't meet with Nico. Nico was in prison while we were, um, so the author of the book, Right. You know, It's, it's the, the book is said to be fiction, but it correlates with a lot of his life experiences. So he was serving a prison sentence for bank robbery. He's since been released. But yeah. So early on, it was very difficult to communicate with him. Yeah. Um, and we do we did re- rehearse a little bit because but we're not big on rehearsing. We we what we really like to do is talk about the character psychology, the character motivation, uh, tool, useful tools that we can all uh, sort of lean on as we act. We like to sort of really explore the tools of what we're doing and the agenda of what we're doing and kick up the possibilities of what can be done and then sort of save it for set. That's generally our process. But we did read with, because some of those scenes between him and Sierra Bravo were so difficult and complicated, we did spend a little more time on this movie than we normally would reading with the actors to get them
2: comfortable. Uh, did you you shoot it in order largely? Did you, or did you do the Vietnam first and then come back and do Cleveland or how did you break it out? We
3: we actually had to do dope life first because Holland had to lose almost a quarter of his body weight for that part of the movie. And we were on a fast schedule. There's no way we could, you know, take time for him to do that in the middle of the shoot. Our preference obviously would have been in um, chronological order, but so we had to go to the hardest stuff, the most emotional stuff at the beginning. And another thing Holland did that was critically important, he spoke to dozens of consultants, both military, uh, um, uh, you know, for, uh, vets who are dealing with PTSD, got very critical detailed information from them uh, and also former addicts. And uh, we had a, a, a consultant on said he was a former addict who could walk them through what they would be feeling, what they would be thinking, how they would be behaving, what kind of drugs they'd be taking and how those would affect their behavior. And, and ultimately, um, uh, you know, I, I think he got an exceedingly, he's like a sponge, Tom. He got an exceedingly uh, um, beautiful performance and very realistic performance through talking to these uh, um, consultants.
2: And just specifically, before we go on to something else, there's one scene, the scene where he's in the barracks and he calls, uh, is it Emily? He calls Emily from the barracks and has that particular breakdown. I'm thinking that is such a hard you know, to control the set, to create the environment where he feels safe to go there. Can you just talk about that day or night or whenever you shot it and, and what you had to do to make that uh, to make that a place where that performance could grow?
3: Yeah, it was a quiet set, obviously. I think there was very few of us on it. It was a super wide shot, so there were no extras required. Um, and uh, And, you know, to his credit, he's very well trained. This isn't, you know, it's not something that took him an hour to get to that place. He knew it was coming up. He went to the trailer. He prepared for it. We kept this qu- uh, set quiet. We shot it in the Uh, and we just oh. ran a few takes in a row. You know, just kept moving the camera back in and then breathing back out again on him, and uh, and let him stay in that place. And when he was done, he was smiling and you know laughing after. So I-, I appreciate that about his work ethic. You know, I like supremely well-trained actors who can turn it on and turn it off, and don't necessarily like put the crew through. The experience of the movie, you know, um, either by, you know, making them call them by their character's name or carrying the emotional, you know, baggage of the scene uh, in into the set, you know, um, and uh, and so he's a supremely well trained actor in that regard.
2: I love that. One take. Always oh, great. So can we talk about the first two shots of the movie just for a second? This is very Jeremy Kagan of me. But you begin the movie with a swooping shot over the street that you almost think is going to be about a guy on a bicycle for a second because this guy on a bicycle is moving past it. And then it turns to Cherry. He's looking directly in the camera. The camera creeps up to him. He seems like, I don't know, something's going on. I can't quite figure it out because the movie just started. And then suddenly you cut to a vehicle coming in, which you think is a point of view of Cherry or something because you're disoriented. And it's him again, looking directly at you. I mean, you must've said, this is how we want to begin the movie. I just want to know why. That wide shot
3: is very, that that drifting, uh, it's a a drone coming down the street over the treetops. The intention of that is to say this could be anyone's story. Mm -hmm. It could be that kid on the bike story. It could be the guy walking down the street. It could be the person in the car driving by. That's what's so tragic about this uh, crisis. It's invisible in a way, but it's happening to your friends, your family and your neighbors. And coming in to find him was critical to us as a way of saying, this is an every man's story, right? It's in this little house on this street right here. And this guy comes out and he is in the middle of, of a drug crisis. Uh, and then you know, we're, we're trying to get you to understand the rhythm and the experimentation with which we're going to explore the rest of the movie through that through him staring at the lens, through that next edit, and then the next edit. And obviously starting with the ending first and pulling you through it. The whole notion came to us very early on that we wanted to segment the movie for a couple of reasons. We broke it up into very distinct chapters where each chapter has a, a different uh, um, style applied to it, different lenses, different lighting, different performance style, different writing style, different color scheme. Um, and it was because we wanted to pull you through his story as subjectively as possible. That's why he breaks the fourth wall. That's why he does it immediately at the top of the film. We're inviting you inside with him to go on a journey with an incredibly likable actor who goes through a hellacious uh, um, story. The other reason that you know we we push the experimentation of the film is that you know again we're trying to be progressive about the visual language that we're using to reach a very specific audience, which is that Gen Z audience. Mm -hmm. And they are more visually proficient than any generation that has preceded them. The volume of information that they consume, the segregated information, right? Think about like Instagram or TikTok where they're just, every time they swipe, it's a a recipe. Then the next swipe is sports. Then the next swipe is music. And then the next swipe is pop culture. And then, you know, they're receiving this information in a way that, you know, I almost find it difficult to comprehend, but I think having four children, it affects the way that they receive content and the way they process content. It's very, very different than the way we process it. And so we were pushing that, that level of experimentation in the film as a way to you know, try to create a new visual language for them, as a way for them to stay compelled and to move through the story with that lead character. Uh, And that's that's really was the uh, impetus for, um, you
2: know- Well, somehow I'm not Gen Z, you know, but somehow it worked for me as well. And I think part of the other sort of alchemy that you did here is you weren't afraid to have a little bit of black humor, Time and again, I mean, one of my favorite moments is when uh, the drill sergeant just punches him in the nuts in the bathroom. And it's just I think he just says he punched me in the nuts. And in the book, it's interesting because it's described and this is exactly how it, and this is from the book. Drill Sergeant Cole punched me in the penis for no reason, which I think is a line that ended up in your soundtrack there. Is as you'd have that, though, you just had to remember it was all make believe. The drill sergeants were just pretending to be drill sergeants. We were pretending to be soldiers. The army was pretending to be the army. And I think one of the things you get from the stylistic changes that you've done is actually a world of artifice in which things are very real, but there is an artifice about it, and it seems perfectly suited to this particular character's perspective in kind of the catch-22 way, which I think really works really well. It's but like
3: institutionalized artifice. Like you're you're yeah. absolutely right, right? This is this is about institutions that, as a you know, a semi-intelligent human being with a poet's soul that he can't understand or comprehend or seem absurd to him. That he's gonna get six weeks of training and go off to war to save lives. You know, when when you have to go to medical school for years, you know, this it all seems absurd to him. So it is an artifice that's been created and built up and and he's in it trying to understand it. And, and you know, this, this kid who's, you know, imbued with social anxiety and depression, trying to figure out how the hell he's gonna make it through uh, war.
2: Yeah. And I, I just think the more you've sort of leaned into that little bit of humor, like what possessed you to call the banks "the bank and and just to have that in the background, this and, and just the bank robberies themselves seem larger than life and, and more humorous than actually deadly in a weird way. How were you thinking about that? And was that sort of a respite in the in the in the in the whole adventure? How did you feel that was that was working in? I mean we we
0: look we knew like you were saying the movie is emotionally taxing mm-hmm. and we wanted to make sure again we feel like this movie can help people. You know, it's about things that people don't like to talk about. Right. So we want we want people to see this movie. So we we thought long and hard about how do we balance the movie. I mean we like balance in general with filmmaking. You know, we like we like to sit down and get the entire range of human Emotions in a single sitting, you know, that's that's our sort of ideal version of cinema. And so but this movie became particularly important to have a a level of fun entertainment levity in it because it is so dark and complicated. So we did look for those opportunities. I mean, we felt like we had an excuse with the bank robberies because at the end of the day, he was some version, some twisted version of a gentleman bank robber. He never (laughs) hurt anybody. (laughs) <laughs> um so there you know you could play you know there was no anybody getting hurt so that allowed for for a little bit of fun to be had um and also i think it's like joe was saying too you know this was a this guy started off life as a, as a sensitive soul and was struggling for connection and he has a little bit of a sort of he feels slightly distanced from everything in his life until he meets this woman and i think it's that that sense of social distance that sense of being able to step back and look at himself while he's passing through life. And then having, you know, he joins the army for the wrong reasons basically. And he shows up there at basic training and he gets a level of sort of toxic masculinity thrown at him that he's never experienced or imagined before. And it just, he goes to that place, I think, as a self-defense mechanism to, to rationalize his situation
2: uh, and move through it. Um, anyway yeah but i don't know i think you guys are too easy on yourselves and maybe too humble but i do see the hand or the hands in your particular case of a little bit of a mastermind when it comes to sierra and tom together i mean a romantic comedy you know spends a lot of time talking about the chemistry between those from the time they meet on the playground through their whole dope life to the very end of the picture you can feel the connection it's very palpable, and that doesn't just come from putting two actors in a room. So, how do you make a, the love story the center of it? And how do you, Sierra, I think, is under under been underappreciated for how amazing her performance is because it's not quite as you know flashy and doesn't have quite the screen time as what Tom does. But how do you create the kind of chemistry that you know is going to have to drive the whole movie from beginning to end? I mean, one
3: is you know we knew we had to build this because this is a. Stream of Consciousness novel. So, we needed structure to build the story around. And the love story seemed the most important aspect of the movie. It also seemed the most tragic. Zhivago was another big movie for us growing up and something that we would watch over and over again, and the ending with the bus and her walking past. And this idea that, you know, two people are meant to be together, but that's not always how the world works. We felt like there's there's a story here about two people are meant to be together, but, you know, make some poor decisions that end up costing them years of their lives in a very, you know, similarly, tragic way. When you're trying to get that kind of chemistry, you have to get these actors to spend time together and they would go do their research together. They would go talk to consultants together. Um, They went through drug training together, right? The dinners together, you know, we we're big on, you know, we come from a big Italian family. Dinner is very important part of the process for us. Let's all go sit and get to know each other socially. Let's ask you about your childhood. Why are you here? Why did you pick this part? You know, what is it that speaks to you? Have you have you known anyone who's suffered through addiction? And so it's a it's an important part of the bonding process is to make sure that everyone is familiar with one another, especially if they're going to be doing things on set that are exceedingly familiar. Mm-hmm. And um, and they clicked really well those two. You know they got along fantastically. And t- you know Tom is also very inviting, performer. He you know he really likes to bring other people into the process. Comes from a big family as well, very close family. Um, and uh, and you're right, I think she's exceptional in the movies uh, uh, too. She reminds me in a lot of ways uh, of an Atlantic theater trained actress, you know, um a mammoth trained actress because she has this level of commitment to the drama that can be situationally very funny, but she doesn't play the humor at all she commits mm. she commits really hard to the drama, and that's what Anthony and I were most impressed about in her um audition, because we knew that if someone tried to play those black humor moments for what they were, it would it would unravel the tone of the movie. And, uh, and she had enough wisdom to know how to play those moments.
2: Yeah, she's, she's just, I mean, I know she'll have a huge future that we'll, we'll see enormously. Now, someone said this is independently financed. I don't understand why the guys who make the largest grossing picture of all time are doing a movie like this independently. Is that something you wanted to do? Or is it true that no one else would make this movie? I mean, this is crazy. It's a hard movie to, you know,
3: to finance because um, it's about really intense subject matter with very experimental execution. Uh, And it was partially, you know, the the market going, uh, I I don't know, this one feels really tough. And do you want to do another superhero film? And, uh, and, and, (laughs) And us thinking, you know what, you know, we built our own company uh, um, after we left Marvel. And part of the reason we did that was to make movies like this. So let's not deal with the strife of Mm -hmm. opinions and nervous opinions. Uh, Let's go make the movie the way that we want to make it. And then we'll uh, bring it to the market and uh, and, and see who wants to be our dance partner for the release of it. And (laughs) it ended up working out perfectly that way.
0: I also think Paris by doing it independently on this one for a variety of reasons, we I think we ended up with a better budget than hmm. we any other way where we had a really healthy budget for a movie as complicated as this. And we were, you know, we were, cause we really wanted to, we, we, we did always think about this film as an epic and we wanted to try to deliver on that dimension of the experience and the character's experience.
2: That's interesting. So you talked about sort of a Gen Z quality to how it all looks. I'm just wondering how much of it is planned and how much of it do you contrive with Tom, I think you called call Tom Siegel, Tom, as you're traveling along. Because with all these different stylistic choices you made, you know, suddenly you see the ladies arrayed on the car, you know, suddenly there's big type on the screen, there's things that you do that break sort of the mold. Is all of that stuff that you planned ahead of time, you know, in this section of the story, we're going to do this? Or is that stuff you discovered as you were shooting and then, you know, went for it? We... We are very thorough. We love to prepare.
0: We love to make the movie over and over again before you make the movie. That being said, we also like to get to set and throw it all out. You know. So,
3: um,
0: so it's a combination. Know, it's a combination. Yeah, it's definitely a combination. But again, that's part of our process from the beginning of the movie. We are at the beginning of the top, uh, beginning of prep, and even before prep. We are talking about these ideas with our collaborators, our production designer, our costumes designer, the actors, et cetera, the writers. We keep going back and forth. Um, we keep trying things experimentally in the script before we have to commit to them. Um, it's a process that we We did that a lot in this movie, because this movie, look, we found this movie, we thought this movie was a challenging movie to make. It was a challenging story, and we wanted to be very stylistically adventurous with it. So we had to do a lot of experimentation in the preparation to feel out ideas to test drive things before mm. we got to set, so that we knew once we started really dedicating the resources of the film to these ideas, we felt confident in them. Um, so there, I would say, you know, we have a lot. You know, again, like I feel like Joe and I, our process of collaboration is we have like this nonstop Socratic dialogue with one another, mm. and then our process of working with others is just to pull them into that nonstop
2: dialogue. You know, and just, and just so for an example, when when uh, when Cherry is first high I think on ecstasy and meets Emily again in the park and you go to black and white and it almost looks like snow is on the street. And, you know, he's you know high as possible and he sees her and then you're desaturated for a while. And then it seems, I, I, you know, I've only seen the film twice, but it seems like you're slightly more saturated as time goes on. Is that decisions you made later or did you just say this is what we want this to look like? Just remember this. Let's sculpt it that way.
0: It was it is a combination again, but that was very thoroughly prepped. We we talked about that a lot with Tom Siegel, our cinematographer, and actually he he pitched us an idea through that sort of dialogue that we have with one another, where he pitched taking a 3D camera rig, having two cameras, one regular hmm. and one uh infra what, what is it called? Joe infrared, infrared. yeah so that we could have those two images be identical with one another. So we shot the scene like that, and we thought that like he would start the scene a little more lost in his high. But as he sort of finds Emily, she sort of pulls him into something, into a more sort of palpable reality as the scene goes on. So we found moments as we were uh, color timing the film where we could, lean on one camera or the other more or less and sort of bring cherry through the scene through that interplay of color
2: um as the shots unfold throughout the scene i think that's so brilliant but then you also put little slow motion intercuts maybe the things he was seeing you know his hand touching her or touching the rope of her swing that kind of broke into that too uh, almost like his consciousness you know he's focusing on one small thing in the course of it too so it has levels of both color saturated and desaturation, but also these moments inside his brain that I thought were really interesting.
3: We're trying to replicate the experience of being on that drug, which rolls, right? So it goes through mm-hmm. these you know, these moments where like you're present and other moments where you're not. and it, Everything's heightened, it's very uh, sensual drug. Uh, and so, you know, the things like feeling rope, you know, feel different to you when you're on ecstasy. So we were we were just trying to have the audience go through that experience with him how he felt meeting her, because it's interesting. This is a kid who, you know, from jump, he suffers from depression and social anxiety, right? Ann said it earlier, who feels disconnected. And, you know, he trades his antidepressant for ecstasy and then meets the girl of his dreams while he's on ecstasy. So in a way, he's sort of, you know, he's kind of doomed from the start because he can't have any real experiences, you know? Um, and uh, he's hiding. Uh, from the world, and and part of what I think is important is that you know he was already depressed, then went to war and got PTSD, right? And mm. so it compounded his um, his mental health state, and I think that's another big issue that that the movie's trying to tackle is that we we're also in a mental health crisis in this country, and I don't think that social media and technology is helping in any way. Mm.
2: Yeah, I agree. Now I'd be remiss because we have a number of ads and 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 second ads who watch this sort of thing. And you had some good background in there.
0: You froze up just a little bit there, uh, but
2: I think we got your question. Just how did you work to make it also seamless with your ad team? Yeah, so
0: we have a uh, we've worked with Chris Castaldi and and the ad team on several movies. Now we have again we have a really uh, sophisticated intimate relationship. We understand. One another really well. And yeah, we just, you know, it's again, it's just everybody in the movie, like again, we want everybody, everybody around us, we want to be a filmmaker. You know, we want everybody making the movie from their point of view, bringing everything they can to the film. And, you know, Chris and his team are are brilliant in terms of figuring out the best version of the movie, the most interesting version of the movie. I mean, we did, you know, we had to lean on uh, the extras, like with the duck walk and a lot of the people in. Basically, we shot all those sequences in Cleveland, but yeah, we went out and found people with uh, military experience so that, you know, we could bring that level of authenticity to the screen in a very easy way, you know, to, uh, make it all work. But yeah, digging deep on extras is, is something that we, uh, we love because it's, you know, it's, there's nothing better than when just somebody has a really
2: short amount of screen time, but leaves you with an impression. As you did, Joe, because I think I saw you for a split second in a bar somewhere. I think weren't you there hiding out?
3: Yeah, I, it's a you know we Anthony. I get a kick out of uh, me doing a cameo and everything we do and some yeah.
2: the Alfred Hitchcockness of it. And uh, you did add a shot from the interior of someone's rectum. And I just have to say, <laughs> did anyone try to talk you out of that? <laughs>
3: I mean, this is this is where you can see sort of the uh, you know our entire career is coming to bear. Um, that, uh, uh, you know, our, our sense of humor from Arrested Development or Community. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we knew that shot would be um, uh, either re- really well or really poorly received, but it's the, it's the risk that's, that's entertaining about it. We have to um,
0: give credit where credit's due those. Tom Siegel, that. Oh really? Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so,
2: so he's <laughs> to blame for that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well I got I got time for one last big question because then they uh, then they're gonna you know make make it all go away. So you put this movie together, you planned it. It's in all these separate segments. You know, you've got Tom, you know, as your willing partner to take chances with each within each of them, and it comes out you know at least for me like the deer hunter. And I think part of the genesis of that is you created a family in the center of it, not just with your two lovers, but also with all of Cherry's friends that developed through the movie and that we lose some of them through the course of it. And I think that is really one of the most difficult things to do. You can add all the style on top of that, but you created a community in there. That just like the deer hunter, I keep coming back into it, we dropped into and we watched those friends and, you know, and the drug dealer just sort of dissolve and he menace and it all gets shattered. I'm just wondering thematically how important is family as a part of your story and how important to that in communicating that need that we have for each other a part of Jerry. You know, First off,
3: I, I got to say, Aunt, that's the best compliment anyone's ever paid us in our careers. Is yeah, I agree. Re- yeah. Referring to the deer hunter in any conversation about <laughs> a movie that we made, um, because <laughs> that was a a really really important movie to us, but also shot in parts of Cleveland, so we always felt a kinship to that movie and the authenticity of that, you know, sort of midwestern working class energy that he brought to that film felt like you know everyone we knew growing up. So. um, but ensemble is critically important to us because we come from a very large Italian family and our understanding of storytelling, you know, really is, uh, was fostered by Sunday dinners Mm -hmm. where everyone would get together around a table and tell stories about their everyday life and try to entertain each other or, you know, uh, um, you know, you know, convey a sense of sadness about something that happened to them. That's really where we, we, we fell in love with storytelling. And, um, and, and you know we if you look at all of our work, it's almost exclusively ensemble work, uh, and it's because we had so many different colorful characters in our lives, aunts and uncles and cousins, and you know this sort of the pastiche that was Cleveland when we were growing up there. It was a very colorful city. it was balkanized, it was made up of a, a lot of different ethnicities um, and uh, and so that's how we view the world. We view the world through you know community. And a, a, a sense of place, and it was critically important to us in this to do that, to do that same thing, to ground him, because he does find a collection of misfits who all sort of rotate in and out of his addiction with him, and and it's what can happen during addiction is you find, you know, mm-hmm. like-minded people or people who are on the same drug that you're on, who who yeah, you know lower companions we call yeah, them, exactly who can <laughs> share that experience with you. Right and and that you know can enable you and uh, and and be codependent with you.
2: Yeah, it's cool, Anthony. Any last words to that? Just thematically, uh, this whole thing that you put together. Well, I appreciate your observation because you you put you know again you're, you're like hearing you talk about it is
0: is exciting for us. So, but yeah, the, I think you know the fact that he has a you know this broken family is is very much I think at the heart of the story because that's really what the, the experience of PTSD has brought to the veterans community, community, the experience that opioids has brought to many parts of the country and uh, many socioeconomic groups, you know, there's a sense of brokenness. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the brokenness doesn't start and end, of course, in our society today with PTSD and, and, and opioids. But I think those are sort of very emblematic of a larger sense of broken community. Anyway, it just seemed, it seemed, I think that's why we were drawn to a story like this at this time is just the, the, the try to explore the experience of having a broken family and figuring
2: out how you, how you can move through, what you can do with that. Well, to me, it's just, um, and I'll just end with this. You ended up making something that's very specifically of today, but because it's so specific, it ends up being timeless. So I wish you, you know, the best success with it. I hope more and more people see it. It hasn't officially come out yet, right? So, oh, well. <laughs> so we have some time to do it. Um, I'll watch it again, but, you know, I'll I, I will, I'll be in the daytime when I do do that. <laughs> so thank you, gentlemen, for joining thank us here right, at the DJ for Special Products. Really appreciate you and, you know, look forward to seeing this again and your next movie. May it be something different because, you know, <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> and that is the time we have so thank you so much for joining us and thank you all for watching on they're, uh, they're letting me know it's time so I appreciate you and thanks to the Russos yeah, thanks, thanks to everyone thanks you me. Paris and thanks to all of you
1: thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A if you'd like to hear more The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts stay tuned in the coming weeks as we bring you discussions of films from Julia Hart Angel Manuel Soto, and Shaka King. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.